morning. The reading today is taken from the Old Testament book of Zechariah, chapter 5, from verse 1 to 11. Zechariah chapter 5, from verse 1 to 11. Those of us with the Holy Bible, the New International Version, it is on page 668. Hear the word of the Lord. I looked again, and there before me was a flying scroll. He asked me, what do you see? I answered, I see a flying scroll, nine meters long and four and a half meters wide. And he said to me, this is the curse that is going out over the whole land. For according to what it says on one side, every thief will be banished. And according to what it says on the other, everyone who swears falsely will be banished. The Lord Almighty declares, I will send it out, and it will enter the house of the thief, and the house of him who swears falsely by my name. It will remain in his house and destroy it, both its timbers and its stones. Then the angel who was speaking to me came forward and said to me, Look up and see what this is that is appearing. I asked, what is it? He replied, it is a measuring basket. And he added, this is the iniquity of the people throughout the land. Then the cover of lead was raised, and there in the basket sat a woman. He said, this is wickedness, and he pushed her back into the basket and pushed the lid cover down over its mouth. Then I looked up, and there before me were two women with the wind in their wings. They had wings like those of stock, and they lifted up the basket between heaven and earth. Where are they taking the basket? I asked the angel who was speaking to me. He replied, to the country of Babylonia to build a house for it. When it's ready, the basket will be set there in its place. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, once again, if you can please keep your Bibles open to Zechariah chapter 5. I'm sure maybe for some of us uh, during this series with White, you have to find out where some of the books are. So Zechariah is the second last book of the Old Testament as well. Please join me in the word of prayer as I ask the Lord to help us. Lord, we give you thanks for your word and we give you thanks that you are God who speaks to us through your word. Lord Jesus, please help me to be faithful in proclaiming your word. And Lord, will you please give us ears to listen to what your word has to say. And Lord, I pray above all that we'll be people who are characterized by doing your word, not merely to be people who know your word. And Lord, we ask all of this in your name. Amen. 
The year was 1966 when England beat West Germany at Wembley and won the Soccer World Cup final. Uh, the English captain at the time was, uh, was Bobby Moore. Uh, it was before he was Sir Bobby Moore. And in attendance was the Queen, uh, who was going to hand out the trophy to the winning champion. And of course, at the day, it is apparently the, the pitch was wet, and so the players were quite dirty. You can even Google the photos of that day. And Bobby Moore, as he was getting up, they made some platform going up to go and receive the trophy from the Queen. Notice something. The Queen was wearing white gloves. I don't know why the Queen loves to wear, used to love to wear the white gloves. And Bobby Moore noticed something. His hands were dirty. They were filthy. Now, where are you going to rub your dirty, filthy hands in order to touch the white gloves of the Queen without leaving the stain? Now, people saw uh, Bobby Moore frantically find, trying to find a clean spot on his body to wipe his hands to shake the queen. Now, even if he did manage to find a place where there was no debt, the reality is that his hands were dirty. I'm not sure if you have ever heard someone after a soccer match or smell them. It's not a pleasant smell, even if they have some of the best deodorants. Uh, because somehow deodorants, we don't put them on the body, we put them on the major important parts. But as he was trying, I think actually the spot he found was more like the armpit. So you can imagine those hands were stinking, even though they may not have lived the stain. But I wonder, though, how Bobby Moore would have felt if on the other side it was God, not just a mere human being, the queen. You see, we all as human beings live in the world where we tend to think, I'm not that bad. You know, I, you know have you seen other people? But the reality, if Jesus was to be in the room and you see them standing there before you do certain things and you see him, hearing your thoughts. I think many of us will pray and hope that the, just the ground to open to swallow us alive. Now in Zechariah, one of the themes that has been coming through in the first five visions, uh, remember the first time I preached here, I showed you how you can see the visions and how you should basically interpret them. So the first five visions of Zechariah received revealed that the Lord is returning to his dwelling place in the midst of his people. So if God is coming to be with you, how are you supposed to be like? Now in my house sometimes, uh, the buzzer goes, and when we ask who is there, and you could see how frantic we go sometimes. I think people with kids know what I mean. The, the, the dirty blankets on the couch disappear to the bedroom. The laundry that was still there ought to be uh, folded is quickly scooped and thrust in the cupboard where you close and you pray the visitors. It's not your mother who's going to open every cupboard. But when God comes, there's one thing we have as human beings that stands on the way, and that is sin. God is holy and he cannot tolerate sin. And as human beings, we are sinful. 
Wiping our dirty hands on our dirty stinking clothes is not enough for God. Someone said to me, imagine God as a germaphobe. You know those people, when you visit their houses, they make you take off your shoes and you put some special socks and they make you wash your hands, sanitize your hands, and even then it's not good enough. Because God cannot tolerate sin. How is he going to dwell with his people? I mean, Leviticus 20, verse 26 tells us, you are to be holy to me, this is what God says, because I, the Lord, I am holy. I've set you apart from the nations to be my own. So God's standard for his people is not just that I'm not as bad as Vuyani. It's not I'm not as bad as other people at church. God's standard is you ought to be absolutely holy. You know, when your house is clean and visitors arrive, you, you, don't, you don't panic. You know, you allow them to come. In fact, it's so nice when they come in those days or when you've been expecting them. But God actually expects his people to live these holy lives. In fact, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15 to 16, we read, But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, not in some of the things you do. God's standard is that in everything you do, you ought to be holy, including your taxes, by the way. Taxes in his up. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. God's standard for his people is absolute holiness. And the book of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, that makes me not very sound confident. And to make the matters worse, Isaiah 64 verse 6 tells us that even actually our good works are like filthy rags before the Lord. So before God, I can't even say, oh Lord, you know, Lord, I've been good. I lectured at the GWC. You're like, really? You? I mean, it's like, dude, that's like filthy rags. I mean, it's wonderful. But even our good works before God are like filthy rags. And God has been telling his people, because I'm coming, I am visiting you. In Zechariah 1 verse 4, he tells them, turn from your evil ways and your evil practices. Meaning that God knows that the people I'm coming to are absolutely sinful human beings. The question then is, is there any hope for them? Is there any hope that God can dwell with these sinful human beings that he's returning to? Now, Zechariah chapter 5 is actually tells us there is hope, which is a weird thing, because when you read that picture of the flying squirrels, you tend to think, I'm more confused and more hopeful. So I hope by the end of the sermon, you at least will read Zechariah chapter 5 and find hope and know that when the Lord returns, it's a good thing. The two visions in our text today describe the same thing, and that is the removal of sin and wickedness from God's God-redeemed people. Both visions share a common direction, and that is going out. Remember in our first week, yo, this is, how many years ago this white? Was it last year or year before? 
year before, sorry, you need to go back to archives or your notes. So when I first look at the book of Zechariah, I said the first few chapters of Zechariah, there's a movement towards Jerusalem. There's a movement of God towards his people. And then what you see from chapter 5 onwards is a movement out of Jerusalem. So what we see in these two visions in our text is actually seen, first of all, going out in Jerusalem, and then the vision about the basket seen being taken from Jerusalem to Babylon. And that's the message of hope. So let's look at the description of the stroll, the flying stroll. Zechariah chapter 5, verse 1 to 2. I looked again, and there before me was a flying scroll. Remember, I said the other key to read Zechariah is to look at this angel who always describes for Zechariah what he sees. This angel is almost like a tour guide and a teacher who tells you, tells Zechariah what, what the meaning of things are. Look at verse 2. He asked me, what do you see? Now, I'm such a, like as a kid, I was so naughty. I used to be scared of certain questions. Like when my aunt asked me certain questions, like, Fuyani, what do you see? I was like, is it a trick question or am I in trouble? You know, I think the mothers know those things, right? Like, it's not that kind of one. I think it's just to draw attention to Zechariah. What do you see? I answered, I see a flying scroll at, at 20 cubes long and 10 cubes wide. There are a couple of strange things about Zechariah's vision, the vision he receives here. First of all, Zechariah sees a gigantic straw, which will have been 10 to 15 times longer and bigger than the normal straw of the days. It's 9 meters by 4 and a half meters. And now some scholars, you know, as soon as you see measurements, you know Bible scholars are going to go crazy. People are always trying to find significance of numbers. So some scholars have said, yes, yes, looking at this scroll, you have to look at 1 Kings chapter 6, uh, verse 3. They say that it's actually it's the same size as the temple porch. So therefore, the, the scroll somehow has to relate to the temple. Uh, and then others say, no, 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 that's still not good enough. You have to go to the Holy of Holies in the temple, right? And you look, at this scroll has the same dimensions as the wingspan of the two cherubims on the Ark of the Covenant that are described in 1 Kings 6, verse 23 to 26. While others will say, no, 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 this actually is similar to the measurements of the tabernacle cited in Exodus 26, verse 15 to 28. So now the question I'm sure all of you are thinking, so Vianney, which one is it? And my answer is neither. Because in Zechariah we saw that the significance of all these events are always explained by the angel. The angel doesn't explain to Zechariah what's the significance of the size. I think the size is just there to highlight for us that it is a huge straw. You know, like sometimes like, there's something that like, it was massive. And the point of the scroll is so that as it flies around, everyone can see it. There's a terrible ad in Cape Town that keeps on coming up on the back of the plane. You know what I'm talking about. I won't have to repeat it. There are children here. Everyone sees it. 
It's a big dimension. And this stroll is so that everyone in the land, as Zechariah says, can see it. So the scroll is huge, bigger than the normal stroll, with the big writing. The other, so that's the first strange thing. It's a huge scroll. The second strange thing about the stroll is that it's written on both sides, which were not common in those days, White can tell you. Most strolls were written on one side, not on two sides. The only other time in the Bible we have a case of the scroll written on both sides is on Ezekiel chapter 2, verse 9 to 10, where the prophet Ezekiel was made to eat the scroll by God, which contained the word of judgment to the nation. And Exodus 32, the two tablets of the Ten Commandments. So what is the significance of the fact that the, sto- the scroll is written on both sides? I think it's again want to emphasize the fullness of God's word contained in it. And this fullness of God's word contained in the scroll is the word of judgment or curses that's going to go out in the world. It's not a scary thing. You want to hear God's word and you just get full judgment of it. The third thing we noticed about the scroll, which was actually absurd in those days, is flying. I mean, this scroll is, is flying. It's not, it, it, it somehow it moves on its own. It does not need any human agent to remove it. The flying scroll demonstrates that God himself is going to execute justice and judgment in the land by bringing the curse of all who disobeying the law, by bringing curse to all who disobey the law of his covenant. The other thing you'll notice about the flying scroll is more like a smart bomb. It targets. It goes to the every house of the thief and every house of those who swear false. It's like those American precise weapons. You can try and change the direction. This scroll is going to find you, and it will find you. It's going to be an ultimate destruction. But we'll get to just to that now. So what is the significance of this flying scroll that is gigantic and moving around executing judgment? I think the first thing we need to realize as God's people is that sin will not go unpunished. God is a God of justice who must deal with sin. We live in the time and an age where if you can get away with it, who cares? If you delete your search history, who cares? If you cheat someone out of something you don't get caught, who cares? God says, I care. And for every injustice, I'm going to bring about justice. And that's the scariest thing. Because who in this room can say, hey, there's nothing that I've, you know, my family doesn't know this about me, or someone doesn't know these thoughts about me. There is a sense we should be scared of this flying scroll, because all of us are under the same boat. I remember once, we were in high school, we were naughty. My friend who was okay, you know, like in high school, you know, ah, that guy is a good guy. Goes to the principal's office and he comes out. Those days, corporal punishment was allowed. And he's rubbing his bottoms. And you can see, ah, he received it hard. 
And then I started, I'm in the line. I'm thinking, this guy's okay. <laughs> I know he's okay. We share the same dorm room with him. I, I know he's okay. If he gets out of the principal's office crying, then I'm in trouble. Because I know there are lots of things that even teachers know about. So this stroll basically tells us, God, we are not getting to get away with it. It is a thief and everyone who swears falsely that is going to be got by it. Now, in South Africa, business people always look off the ways of cheating the taxman. And we get away with it, right? Creative accounting, creative booking, everyone, even Christian says, it's a standard practice we are Well, you might get away with it because our government at times is very highly incompetent, but not from God's perspective. Students at GWC always struggle with plagiarism. And sometimes you can cheat the system. Use synonyms so that it cannot be detected. But well, God is going to see it and detect it. So, but a little bit of a background. Why is God a God who curses these people? I mean, that, that sounds strange to say God curses these people. We all live in the time and age that says God loves these people. We all want God of love, but the God who curses people seems to be a strange concept. Now we need to look at Zechariah chapter 5 in light of Deuteronomy 28, which was actually talking about the blessings for covenantal obedience and curses for covenantal disobedience. You see, God delights in blessing his children who live according to his will, but as God is a God of justice, he has to deal with sin. In Deuteronomy 28, verse 15 to 16, and verse 19 to 20, we read, If you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commandments and degrees I'm giving you today, all these curses will come on you and overtake you. You will be cursed in the city and cursed in the country. You will be cursed when you come in and cursed when you go out. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, rebuke in everything you put your hand to until you are destroyed and come to sudden ruin because of the evil you have done in forsaking him. Man, that's harsh. I mean, imagine your father saying this to you. I mean, some of you are like, yo. But there's the consequences about forsaking God. And sometimes we live in a world that takes that lightly for granted. But there will be serious consequences when we forsake God in what we do. Disobeying him is something his people are not to take lightly as there will be severe consequences. So don't get to the trap of thinking you are not as bad as other people. You are. And the better you know you are, the easier it is for us to seek God. You see, I think sometimes Satan likes to fool us so that we fool ourselves to think, actually, God must be impressed to have me. 
You know, somehow, God, God must be happy, must be very pleased with me. And we forget that actually, the only thing I bring in this relationship is sin. And all the good blessings come from him. I mean, think of the story of Bobby Moore again. The last person who should have been worried about their dirty hands was Bobby Moore when he won the World Cup. After all, what were they going to sing? God save the Queen. This was supposed to bring pride to the British nation. You warned it for the Queen. You can even say it. This was for the Queen. And the Queen is there. In fact, you got knighted after it. But yet Bobby Moore, standing there, seeing those pristine white gloves, became aware of his filth. Even at the most precious time in the English history, because Britain and not English have not really won lots of World Cups, even though they have the good league. And many of us, we forget actually when we stand before God, we will all wish for the ground to open up and swallow us. Have you seen how all the Old Testament prophets, when they come before God, the first thing they all do is to fall flat on their face and they say, unworthy. Because we are unworthy. And then of course, Deuteronomy tells us, if we break God's laws, we deserve destruction and sudden rule. And the message of Zechariah is actually picking on those covenantal curses. So look at the people that the scroll was going to target. Verse 3 to 4. And he said to me, this is the curse that is going out over, all, over the whole land, for according to what it says on the one side, every thief will be banished, and according to what it says on the other, everyone who swears falsely will be banished. The Lord Almighty declares, I will send it out, and it will enter the house of the thief and the house of anyone who swears, swears by my name. It will remain in that house and destroy it completely, both its timber and its stones. The destruction of the stone is indeed like a smart bomb. You know, when the U.S. hits the so-called terrorist, with their groans, nothing is left. And this stroll is going to do precisely that. The stroll is going to look out at God's covenantal people. It will first target every thief. And more significantly, it will target any, anyone who swears falsely by the name of the Lord. Secondly, the stroll is a flying covenantal document whose task is to bring covenantal curses of Deuteronomy to the covenantal breakers who are described as thieves and who swears falsely by the, name, by the name of the Lord. But why the thief and those who swear falsely? I mean, is, is, is being a thief the worst sin you can commit than other sins? It is not to note that both sins are listed in the Ton Commandment you shall not steal, says the Eighth Commandment. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, which is the Ninth, ninth Commandment. And the third, third Commandment says, You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not, will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. 
So what some scholars are saying in looking at this task, because remember the, two command, the Ten Commandments had two stones. Eight and nine were written on the one side and the others were written on the other side. They are saying it just highlights the completeness of the word of the Lord. And here is basically God is going to punish people for those who sin against their fellow human beings, which was the first list, the, the second list, commandment eight and nine are, and also the sins against God, such as misusing the name of the Lord. So God, actually, what we do to each other matters to God. How we treat one another matters to God as how we treat God. Sometimes as Christians, we have this unholy way of looking at life. As long as I pay my tithes at church, as long as I pray at church, I'm okay, right? While at work, everyone gets so shocked that you are a Christian. You know, there are people that people who work under them, they're like, that person is a Christian. No ways. But guess what everyone at church says about them? And they are such a wonderful, godly person. Even their generosity at church towards God's people is just amazing. They are love, but at work, they are vicious. Now, as a Christian, you can't have this secular and sacred divide. God withholds us responsible for what we do at work and what we do at home and what we do at church. So sinning against God's people and sinning against God are equally condemned in the Bible. But there's something else taking place here that is actually contextual. And that is, remember, this is a time when this takes place in the history. So people are returning from, uh, from exile. They are rebuilding. And these two particular sins are actually the most tempting sins of the day. Remember, in those days, there were no quantity surveyors. Like if you go to the Eastern Cape, boundary walls, it's so weird. I go to my dad's side and my, we just discovered that actually my grandmother had a wonderful field someone has been using illegally for the past, since 1970. We knew it was somewhere, but we didn't know where. And this person had been planting it because my grandmother said they could use it for 10 years up until my dad came back from Cape Town and my dad never came back. So that family just kept quiet. And then now I go and see this field. Okay, where is the field? Now, it's not, there's no fence around it. They point to four stones as boundary markers. You see that stone over that corner? Now go there on the other side and then walk to the other side. That stone. And then there. And these stones are not even fixed that deeply. You can easily wiggle it, go and dig another hole and move the stone. And then you get more boundary. So when, as the people came back to the land, some people were starting to steal other people's land by moving the boundary markers to gain more land for yourself. Now someone's going to say, no, but our field used to go there. And they're like, no, 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 our field, how, how did you resolve this as a judge of Israel? You made them to swear. 
by the name of the Lord. Now imagine you are a poor person with no power in the community. This powerful person says, I swear by the name of the Lord. That's where my field is. And you realize that your agricultural field is half of what it was. That's a gross injustice you can see, and you cannot do anything about it, right? Humanly speaking. Well, Zechariah 5 says, no, 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 no. Don't be fooled. God is going to do something about it. This rule was, in fact, let's read more about this rule, basically, in Exodus 22, verse 10 to 11, where we we read, If anyone gives a donkey, an oxen, a sheep, or any other animals to their neighbors for safekeeping, and it dies or is injured or is taken away while no one is looking, the issue between them uh, so that the issue between them will be settled by taking an oath before the Lord that the neighbor did not lay hands on the other person's property. The owner is to accept this and no restitution is required. So do you see how thieving and falsely swearing by the name of the Lord went together? So there are basically people during this time who just say, I swear on the Bible, I didn't do it. You know they did it. You can't prove it. And the judge says they are okay. Now Zechariah says that's not okay. God is going to deal with it. Look again in verse 3. And he said to me, this curse is going out over all the whole land. For what it says on the one side, every thief will be banished. And according to what it says on the other side, everyone who swears falsely will be banished. So false testimony is something God takes very seriously. The Hebrew commentators have noted that this is, actually this is verse 5 is not some of the best translations. It's actually the word should read more, it will be cleaned out according to the ESV, if you read the ESV. First, this means that, uh, so there are two things. God is going to clean out his place and he's going to make sure it's removed. The best translation should read, and he said to me, this is a curse that is going to God over the whole land. Every thief has been acquitted. That's a right, actually, Hebrew translation. From the one, every thief who has been acquitted on the one side and everyone who swears falsely has been acquitted from what he says on the other side. So God is going to deal with an injustice in the land. Some people were supposed to pay God away with it. In South African history, we know this very much. There are people who went to jail who were simply following the orders of their commanders. And there are commanders who made those, those deals, but were too powerful, and justice was never meted out. So in the human court, they've been acquitted. And God says, no, 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 I have my smart bomb, and this smart bomb is going to find them and is going to deal with them. That to me scares me, friends. Because it means ultimately, human opinions of self, of who I am, count nothing before God. Everyone can think Vian is such a wonderful person. So I've been acquitted by the approval of man. 
but God knows my heart. And this mud bomb is going to find me if I don't repent. And it's going to make sure I get destroyed. And to just swear, I swear, God knows my heart. Actually, I should not say that because when I swear God knows my heart, I mean, he knows it. You know, he knows all the things I've hidden in there. But most times we just use the Christian language to cover up sin. I'm aware of many people, for example, whether in the UK or in the US or in South Africa, who've been abused in churches. And their voices were not counted by Christian people. And those leaders continue to go in as normal. Zechariah said, no, God is going to mete out his justice, even to those people who seem to have been acquitted. That should scare all of us. Numbers chapter 1 verse 3 tells us that God will not leave the guilty unpunished. I don't know what has been done to your life. For some of us who carry so much trauma and pain of things that have been done to us, either by family members, and no one else believes us. But as a Christian, we can actually rest assured that God knows and God sees and God is going to deliver his justice. So the vision ought to remind us that even if for a time wrongdoers get away with it, they run to Dubai or to Russia, God is going to find them. That should bring hope. Because as a South African, when you look at our politicians, you just get despondent. You want to say no one cares. They just get away with it. God says, actually, I do care. And I'm going to deal with them. God's judgment is absolute. Notice in verse 4, the Lord Almighty declares, I will send it out and it will enter the house of a thief and the house of anyone who swears falsely by my name. It will remain in that house and destroy it completely, both its timbers and stones. It is a complete destruction of sin and the sinner among God's people. And by the way, this is not the message of the Old Testament alone. Because sometimes when you read the Old Testament, oh man, it's so graphic. God hates sin in the Old Testament and he destroys sin. But in the New Testament, he's so wonderful, isn't he? Jesus loves me. He just, he just wants to hug me. He doesn't care about what I do. Are you sure you have read your New Testament? Look at Revelation 21, verse 8. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderer, the sexual immoral, those who practice magical art, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the far lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Uh, tell me if your sin is not listed on that list, should I explain some of those sins in such a way that you can see you also part of them? Okay, idolaters, anyone who takes anything to replace God in your life. Is there something you cherish more than God? You know the thing you do when you first get up in the morning and you think about the one thing that brings you joy more than God? That's idolatry, by the way. And we all have our own idols. 
You know, it's interesting. Sometimes you can have an idol of being an academic. The issue is for people to admire your cleverness, how much you know the Greek and the Hebrew, and not actually to do the study of God's word in order to know God and to love him. That's an idolatry. And God is going to deal with it. Sexually moral. Oh, well, let's go to Jesus' sermon on the mount. If you look at the woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery with her. Okay, any man here will want to confess how much victory they have in that area? Uh, chances are it's something we all struggle with. So what the New Testament tells us as well, the Old Testament, we ought not to take sin lightly. Looking at 2 Corinthians 7 verse 1, it says, Therefore, since we, have been pro- since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates the body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reference for God. Christian attitude should never be the attitude that is indifferent towards sin. Because God is going to destroy sin. But this raises a, qu- a question, though. If God is, will not tolerate sin and is going to destroy those who sin against him, who will be able to withstand? I mean, that kind of heaven is going to be very empty. Is there a way that sinful human beings like us can be in heaven? Now, that's where the second vision comes in, the woman in the basket. If God had let us in our own devices in terms of dealing with sin, the reality is that all of us will go to hell. We might be like uh, Bobby Moore, trying to clean ourselves outwardly, but the fact is that actually internally, we are all have sinned against God. Now, I remember a couple of years ago, someone who was so rebuked by their own sin, uh, my friend was a pastor, was called in the middle of the night, uh, this guy's sister walked in his room and he was about to hang himself. And this guy went to a church. The church had a terrible pastor who kept on lying to people, saying he no longer sins as a pastor. He's a man of God. And this young man who's been coming to this church tried all the fast Christians tell about. You know, whether it's a Daniel fast, fast for seven days, and he was just realized he kept on sinning. And he was so convicted of sin that he thought he was a terrible Christian and he thought the only way out was to take his own life. And my friend was called to try and intervene. Because the guy was absolutely hopeless about his own sins. Now Zechariah chapter 5 tells us there is hope though. And that is God himself is going to intervene to remove sin. Look at the second vision. We are told, look up and see what is appearing or what is going out. In verse 6, he is told by an angel what is going out. It is a basket and is further told what the basket represents. Do you see why I say the nice thing about Zechariah? You read him, you have a tour guide and a commentator for you. It represents iniquity of the people throughout the land. So God is not blind. You know, not all his people throughout the land are full of sin. Inside the basket is wickedness, 
personified as a woman according to verse 8. Now, we don't have a lot of time to go to, into great details about this vision, but I'd like us to make a couple of observations regarding it. The first thing I'd like us to notice is that wickedness, which is a comprehensive term for all kinds of sins, is contained. You are not as sinful as you could possibly be. I don't think many of us understand how evil we could be if God did not put a restraint on us. We were one anger away from being like Hitler. But God always restrains our sins. And also we need to understand something. Sin is not an equal force opposite to God. It exists under his power and authority. Now that sounds shocking. Look with me in verse 7. Then the cover of the lid was raised and there in the basket sat a woman. He said, this is wickedness. And he pushes her back into the basket and pushes it, its lid covered down on it. The woman who is a personified evil is trapped in the basket with the lid covering the weight around 34 kilos. She is not allowed to escape. She is not allowed to show herself but she is uh, soon, soon thrown back into the basket and the lid is closed shut. And then there's, so sin, while we know it's there, while we know Satan actually tempts us, he's not running a free rampage against God's people. Remember the story of Job and Satan? He had to get permission from God. He couldn't just do whatever he wanted to do to you. Do you know what 1 Corinthians tells us? When we are tempted, Lord always makes a way out. But notice the other thing in this vision. There are two women with wind in their wings. They have wings like those of a stalks, and they lifted up the basket between heaven and earth in verse 9. The significance of these two winged creatures is that they are in motion with the wind in their wings. According to Psalm verse 18, verse 10, the wind is the divine agency of motion, meaning that whatever these two winged creatures, uh, creatures were doing, it's at the Lord's command. In verse 11, we hear the two winged creatures took the basket to the country of Babylon to build a house for it. When the house is ready, the basket will sit there in its place. The basket will stay there permanently while God's house is being built in Jerusalem. Wickedness will be housed in Babylon and Jerusalem, which represents God's dwelling place, wickedness will be removed from it. Therefore, there seems to be an antithesis happening in this text of the building a house for the Lord and the building a house for wickedness. It is interesting in Revelation, in the book of Revelation 18, Babylon is depicted as a woman who constantly opposes God's people, a woman who constantly enticing the people to fall into sin and to neglect God. But again, in Revelation 18, though, tells us that in the end, Babylon will, dis will, will be destroyed. Here in Zechariah, however, it is not the destruction in view, rather sin being removed from God's people to where it belongs. 
where at the end it will be destroyed. In Zechariah 3 verse 9, the Lord promised to remove sin from his people. The text is a full, uh, it, this text talks about the fulfillment of that promise. But ultimately we know how God removes sin from his people. It was through the death of his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. It was through his blood, the one who was innocent, who died for the sinful, so that our sins can be removed from us. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, we read, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteous of God. What we see is actually sin is very costly. If your sin, Jesus did not die for, you will pay for it. And that means absolute destruction of you and everything you stand for. But if you trust in Jesus, your sin has been paid for by him. And guess where your destiny is? Jesus told us in John's gospel, he's going to prepare a place for us. While for those who don't believe in him, well, they'll be joining Babylon. There's also another place to reserve for them, which is actually an eternal destruction where there will be no ceasing of pain. But for those who belong in Jesus, it's going to be a time of rejoicing so that when it comes, I know that my house is dirty, but he cleaned it. He took care of it. When it comes, it's like when I welcome, you know, sometimes some of my family members say, my sisters are wonderful. They say, my, my, my brother, we know travel a lot. We just want to bless you this week. I'm coming to your house to clean it. And let me tell you, my sister, when she cleans, she cleans. I mean, she finds all the dirty things in my house. And they come back like, wow, it's spotless. When Jesus returns, we know the one who cleanses us, the one who paid our penalty. He took care of it. His righteousness becomes ours, and therefore I can stand before God. But if we reject him, guess what awaits you? Absolute destruction. So let us pray. Lord Jesus, you know our hearts. You know that we are prone to sin. But Lord, we give you thanks for your love for us on the cross. That, Lord, you died for us so that we could be acceptable to the Father. Lord, we give you thanks that this is not from ourselves. It is a gift from God. And, Lord, I pray that as those who claim to love you, as those who claim to have a relationship with you, help us, Lord, not to take sin lightly, but help us, Lord, to put it to death. And, Lord, I pray for those who don't know you, Lord, will you please open their eyes to the truth of your gospel. Help them, Lord, to see what awaits them if they don't return to you. Lord, we ask all of this in your name. Amen.